This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Knowledge at Wharton would like to welcome Mark Pauley, who joins us today. And Mark is a Wharton professor of healthcare management, and he's going to talk about a very, a potentially very important aspect of Obamacare or the Affordable Care Act that is kind of a sleeper issue uh, that people haven't paid attention to, but it's potentially really uh, quite important and potentially quite expensive. So I think the title of your new briefing paper on this topic puts it fairly succinctly. You ask, is there a future for employer-sponsored health care? Who knew that there might not be a future? And I think it's a surprising question for a lot of folks. And this has to do with the idea that um, th- there may be incentives to employers out there to give up some, some um, health insurance plans because of the way that Obamacare affects at least some uh, people in their companies or at least some companies of a certain size, mm-hmm. generally smaller companies. Right. Let me leave it to you to, to, to spell this out for so, us a little bit. Uh, yeah. So bef- before the passage of the Affordable Care Act, uh, if you were um, not, not a poor person eligible for Medicaid, uh, you basically um, could only get help from the government to get health insurance by getting insurance through your job. Um, and although you may not think of it this way, uh, that actually is uh, potentially a way to provide substantial help because the fraction of your compensation that you would get as uh, your employer's premium payment would not be subject to taxes. Then, as most of us pay an explicit premium as well, usually it's about a quarter of the total premium, that's also excluded from taxation. And if you have a creative enough employer that's set up a flexible spending account, you can exclude up to $2,500 of spending not covered by insurance from taxation as well. So before the ACA, only people who got insurance through their job uh, could get uh, help for the government from private insurance. Um, What the Affordable Care Act did was set up uh, a system of subsidies related to income, up to 400% of the poverty line income, that a person could get if they got insurance through the exchanges that were uh, set up by the the law. Uh, And the reaction to that in part was to say, um, well, this may be the end of the world as far as employment-based insurance would go, uh, because uh, especially if you are willing to believe, uh, despite uh, so far, I think, evidence to the contrary, that these exchanges will be terribly efficiently run and offer wonderful choices. Don't get me wrong. There are some good exchanges, but they're more the exception than the rule. But if you thought they'd really be a wonderful thing, maybe a lot of uh, people would say, gee, I'd rather get my insurance through an exchange where perhaps I have more choice than I have at my job. And then some employers said, or even some consultants told them, uh, look, um, you're now paying, let's say, an average of about $4,000 per worker for insurance. There's a penalty if you're a large employer for not making that payment, but the penalty is only 2000 2000 being less than 4000 Why not drop insurance coverage and tell your employees to go to exchanges? What, why is the penalty $2,000? The, there's, there's an explicit penalty in the law for um, employers – well, it was – 
the, the, it's called the employer mandate. And the, the employer mandate says if you're an employer above a certain size, you have to provide insurance to your workers and contribute a certain fraction of your premium of their premium. But if it, but if you didn't, the, um, it's complicated like everything in the law. But roughly speaking, you you would be subject to a a penalty of two thousand dollars per worker. But the calculation was well, two thousand dollars is less than what I'm paying now. Wouldn't I come out ahead uh, by dropping insurance coverage? Um, um, what the point that I make in this article is well, it's not quite so easy. Uh, so there are some employers uh, and their workers who would come out ahead. And I guess the key issue here really is not what's in the interest of the employer, but what's in the interest of workers. Can workers, on balance, be better off by, in effect, uh, taking the money that employers were spending on them for insurance and going to the exchanges? And the answer would be if you were um, uh, a worker in a, especially a small firm with mostly low-wage workers, there would be an advantage. The advantage would be you aren't getting much of a tax break before because your taxable income is not that high. But now, uh, with the same amount of money, uh, you could go to an exchange and say if your income was 200 percent of the poverty line, which would be about $38,000 for a person. Um, uh, you um, uh, you could get a 50% subsidy. So uh, that's a much bigger break than you were getting before. So the, the, uh, the news is that there would be some workers and some firms where there would be an advantage. And if this was a small firm under uh, ultimately under 50 workers, although it starts off with a threshold of 100 workers, uh, there would be no penalty for the employer. The only uh, reason, though, why that doesn't necessarily signal a revolution is that the fraction of workers who work in small, homogeneous, low-wage firms who currently get health insurance is actually quite tiny, less than 5% of the overall workforce. So although those people would gain a lot, there aren't a lot of them. And um, uh, at the other extreme, if you are working in a large firm and you're an upper-middle-income worker, and most people in that firm are, if that employer canceled in their insurance, uh, 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 then um, you as workers could go to the exchange, but you would have to pay the full premium without a subsidy, and you wouldn't get the tax break anymore. So you would actually plead with the boss, boss, please don't drop insurance coverage uh, because uh, we, we'd actually uh, ra rather get our compensation the way we're currently getting it rather than the, the way we would have to deal with an exchange. So from the employer's point of view, let's say I'm a large employer, and uh, I think you said the average premium is $4,000, so, yeah. even for a large firm. Uh, does that include, is that like after the uh, the tax breaks that I get? From no, that's before. That's, uh, that's before. So it's actually not costing me 4000 It's costing me something less because well, of tax advantages? Yeah. So okay. uh, it depends, of course, what's marginal tax bracket you're in. But, right. you know, if, if, if you were in a 30% tax bracket, it's costing you $1,200 less than 4000 Right. Okay. <laughs> so then, uh, so... Uh, the employee would not want their employer to do that because it would be almost like a pay cut, wouldn't it? It would be like a pay cut. Could and you just course, explain how it would be like a pay cut? Well, effectively, it is like a pay cut. If if you, um, uh, uh, even though, it, it, let's take the simple case where the uh, employer drops insurance but gives you back the money, the four thousand dollars they were spending. Well, um, you're now going to have to pay um, twelve hundred dollars. 
uh, more in taxes because you got $4,000 more in taxable income. You go to the exchange, you say, where's my subsidy? They say, sorry, you earn too much to be eligible for a subsidy. You get zero subsidy. You're, you're, you're out $12,000. And um, at least in my simple example, there was no – the employer was neutral because they just transferred the money uh, from from uh, paying for benefits to cash compensation. Right, you're out, out 1200 or 1200 $1,200. So, no, yeah, $1,200. Yeah. Uh, you're out $1,200 by losing the tax break. So uh, that's uh, – I guess that's a lose-lose <laughs> proposition. Right. But it doesn't take into the, the – take account of the idea that, that an employer – not saying they would, but in theory they could say – I'm not providing insurance, which would be like a pay cut. Oh, and I'm not giving you the four thousand. Yeah. That, well, they could. They could, of course, say, "I'm not giving you the money either." But then you'd wonder. Um, uh, that would be like a pay cut, and you'd uh, wonder. You know, you're kind of a sorry excuse for a capitalist because you must have been overpaying me in the first place. Right. Uh, if I will continue to work for you after this big pay cut, because now so, you're less competitive. Yeah, workers right. want to work so someplace we, else. Yeah. You know, we usually assume, uh, and it's probably easier to assume in the current labor market than in the labor market that prevailed in 2010 when the ACA was passed. But we usually assume labor markets are pretty competitive. Workers are not being overpaid, but if their compensation takes a big hit, um, uh, the employer that does that is actually going to lose rather than win because the workers will no longer want to work there. So whether your pay is cut or your health care benefits are cut, it feels the same to the worker. It feels worker. the same. And really, that's, that's kind of the main economic message here, that employers don't give you health insurance. They just either pay you in the form of cash or in the form of benefits. And one advantage, as I started off by saying, of getting my getting paid in the form of benefits is that, that uh, that's something I get a tax break for, whereas if I p get paid in this cash, I've paid tax on it. As does the employer. As does the employer for the Social Security part, yeah. So the big split here seems to be bigger companies and smaller companies. Yeah. And, and I think you're saying that the, the – a percentage of smaller companies doesn't add up to a very big percentage. Yeah, overall. if you look, if that's right, or or at least if you look at the fraction of people who were getting private health insurance through their job, which was more than ninety percent of all people getting private health insurance, the great bulk of those people are not working in small, homogeneous, low-wage firms. They're working in large firms that either have high average wages, which was the story I was telling a few minutes ago, or even if, as in many large firms, there are some low-wage workers, the great bulk of the workers are not low-wage. So if the firm cancels the whole deal, it's going to do more harm to the larger number of high-wage workers, then it's going to benefit the small number of low-wage workers. So, uh, And then if you add on top of that the fact that there's this $2,000 penalty, uh, it would seem like a, a money-losing proposition uh, all around for a, a large firm to uh, uh, contemplate um, uh, dropping health benefits. So uh, there's another intriguing line in your uh, in your brief which says that there, there could be some incentive for some large companies to think about creating a separate company uh, for lower wage workers in order to eliminate some health care insurance. So yeah. So my position on this, uh, my econometrics professor told me when you forecast the future, never attach a date <laughs> if you <laughs> present a number. But I'll put a date here. So my, my view is that in the short run, let's say over the next five years, I don't see uh, a, a massive reduction in the provision of health insurance by employers just for the reasons I mentioned, that the great bulk of workers now getting health insurance through their jobs are in these large heterogeneous firms that uh, there isn't going to be a, a, a net gain from dropping coverage. Het but Heterogeneous but, meaning? Meaning there are some low-wage workers but a lot of high-wage workers. Okay. 
but uh, it, with enough time and with enough ingenuity on the part of Americans, which we definitely have an a- adequate amount of, uh, it's a, a large firm could see – um, although it might not be politically correct, how to make it possible for their low-wage workers to get this juicy tax subsidy that they could get in exchange, what they would have to do, uh, at least the most straightforward way, would be to reconfigure the way the firm is organized, kind of spin off the tasks that are performed by low-wage workers into a firm hiring only low-wage people and preferably even still a small firm, and then there wouldn't be a penalty, and those workers could uh, potentially claim uh, a, a, f- a fairly hefty tax break. My assumption is that it would take a while for that uh, change to happen, but I guess it could eventually happen because in some ways saying, well, if you're a low-wage worker who worked for a small firm or if you were a self-employed low-wage person, right now you're eligible for this uh, quite generous subsidy. But if you're the janitor at Microsoft, you're not eligible for this subsidy. That's sort of intrinsically unstable in addition to being unfair. Are there any industries where that might – where the cleavage between the two groups might be more natural and – well, that's a good question. I, like a, I don't know. I'm I, just... I think the answer. I mean, the answer is if if it's possible to uh, separate out the low wage workers into a separate entity with separate management and still have production take place efficiently, that would be an industry where that would happen. Now, thinking of the industry I work in, which is the higher education industry, we have low wage workers here, administrative staff, and so forth, and um, there are none of this, there are literally our partners. It would be hard for me to think of um, handing over my um, my uh, calendar planning or uh, preparation of uh, uh, materials for my classes to somebody who works for a separate company other than the University of Pennsylvania. So I don't see Penn actually uh-huh. engaging in this spinning off low-wage workers for, uh, for the bulk of what people do here. I mean, we actually have already, of course, spun off things like campus security and uh, uh, some of the food services to, to other firms. So that would be possible. Mm-hmm. What about something like a... Uh, uh uh, mass manufacturing firm, an assembly line operation, right, where you've got thousands of workers doing that and then, you know, a smaller management. Yeah, well, again, I think it comes back to can you separately carve out the tasks? In a, in a manufacturing firm, a lot of the low-wage workers are just, because they're seniority, they're just workers who haven't been there as long. And it would be kind of hard to say we'll have a separate firm for the starting workers uh, and and then uh, for the permanent workers. Um, although, you know, here at the university, we do have adjuncts and you could imagine spinning them off into a separate firm. But, um, but uh, uh, it doesn't seem, uh, as, I, as I think about the question in general, um, I think there's a reason why firms are heterogeneous, why they employ high-wage and low-wage workers, because it's more efficient to manage them collectively rather than managing them separately. But if there's enough of a, of a, of a carrot dangled in front of people to s- switch the method of organization, well, somebody's always on the margin. Somebody might do it. Uh, but I guess I'm, I'm programmed to say, but that doesn't sound like a good idea for society because you are, in effect, subsidizing an inefficient way of organizing production if it really was more efficient to have um, uh, have workers uh, high and low wage uh, as part of the same firm. 
What haven't we covered on this that would be important for viewers to know about? Well, there is a kind of uh, current uh, way to uh, um, uh, make it uh, advantageous for low-wage workers to um, uh, 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 be spun out uh, or to be uh, 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 separated. And that is, um, and there's a considerable debate about this, the law penalizes firms when they don't provide health insurance to full-time workers, but not when they don't provide health insurance to part-time workers. So this has been a big debate, and one of the, um, uh, uh, I believe, adverse incentives present in the law is to say to an employer, look, if you can um, split your work into um, uh, twice as many part-time workers instead of full-time workers. And if they are also low-wage, that's important. If they're low-wage anyway, but you can split them into part-time workers, then those part-time workers, there's, there's no penalty for sending them off to the exchange. Now I'm back again on my sermonette about how that doesn't sound like a good way to organize production because usually it doesn't make as much sense to have part, a lot of part-time workers as, some, as a smaller number of full-time workers if you're producing things in ordinary um, uh, kind of production setting, although, of course, we know for some things like um, uh, fast food and things like that, it may, may, not, may not be so um, inefficient. And some companies are already doing that, See, but, over, already limiting hours. So yeah, but the, uh, and um, some companies are saying, and they're probably right, that uh, this incentive will cause us to emphasize part-time work more than full-time work. Um, uh, it, 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 I, there's no intrinsic merit to full-time or part-time work, but uh, having the reason why you choose to employ people as part-timers is because of this subsidy is not a good reason from the point of view of overall efficiency. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.